0: Hello, and welcome to this Princeton University podcast entitled Family Wealth, Values, and Legacies. This session was recorded on May 30th, 2009, during Reunions Weekend. My name is Ron Brown. I am in my 14th year as the Director of Gift Planning and a proud member of the Princeton Class of 1972. This year, the Gift Planning Office invited Tom Rogerson a managing director with BNY Wealth Management, and a highly regarded national speaker, to share his thoughts and strategies for developing a successful approach to family philanthropy. Please join our live audience now to listen to Tom Rogerson.
1: It's an honor for me to be with you all today. So I really love what I do. I have a chance to work with families around the country and, and see what they're doing that works for them and uh, what doesn't work for them and then share it with other, other people. And what you're going to hopefully see today is the role of philanthropy in the process of actually building a stronger family. And I actually believe that I, I would rather see a family succeed by using philanthropy effectively in their family and having no estate plan at all than having the best estate plan money could buy and not be using philanthropy effectively in the family. And i to trying to build that case today of what we're seeing and I will tell you that much of the work that I do is with very high-network <coughs> families. So a lot of the information comes from families that are dealing with wealth-related issues. However, the lessons that you can learn from them relate to anybody. And uh, again, I really love what I do because I tend to take the concepts that are working for them and apply them at much lower levels like mine and benefit with my family. The entrepreneurs that I deal with a lot are the ones that t- tend to get this quickest. I do a lot of work with entrepreneurs. In like fact, somebody said they were in Kansas City. I was just in Kansas City yeah, this week. And uh, there were a group of entrepreneurs out there, and I was asking them, do you feel that your role as a parent has been to try and raise unique, strong, independent individuals in your children and your grandchildren? And they'd say, yes, of course I want to raise. You know, and then i change it a little bit. They'd say, that's a pretty good description. I want to raise unique, strong, independent individuals. And I'd say, great. But then I'd ask them, do you feel your role at work has been to try and take a group of unique, strong, independent individuals, like your management team, or your people who report to you at work, and get them to work together effectively as a team. And they say, well, yeah, of course I want to have good, strong people working for me, but of course I want them to work together as a team. It didn't take them long to recognize what they might have been missing at home was the concept of home team. And if you have it, great, but if you don't have it, how do you build it? What would that look like? And what you're going to hopefully see today is the role of a number of things but one of them central to that is the role of philanthropy as, as possibly helping a family build the concept mm-hmm. of home team. The three big questions that were originally asked uh, of us by some of the families we're dealing with, by the way, most of the slides you're going to see on the screen are in your handout material, so you shouldn't have to take many notes as we go along with what you want to. Uh, and if there are any things that you see up here that I don't have in the handout, let me know. I can email them to you. If you actually want the slides themselves, Give me your email address, and I can e- email them to you if you'd like as well. Because um, some people prefer it electronically than uh, written. It uh, makes, makes it easier to share with other people in like But anyway, if you'd like it, let me know. But the three big questions that people uh, asked about family dynamics were related to uh, typically wealth, but you're going to see, again, the answers were related to anybody. Number one, how much is enough? Now, it used to be they were asking this question in relation to how much is enough for my children or grandchildren. It, now they're asking that question, how much is enough for me <coughs> the family? I don't know. The world is changing beneath our feet. And so how do you figure that out? What are the projections for what we'll, we'll see going forward? And do I have enough for me? And do we have enough for the family? Secondly, when do I tell them? When do I tell family members what the plan is? Children or grandchildren? Because if I tell them too early what the plan is and what we they might be receiving and all, I could disable the motivations of budding careers. And I could deep, totally demotivate them. But if I tell them too late, I could have missed an opportunity to prepare them for what's to come. I had actually a very, very wealthy family I was dealing with just recently, where one of the women in the family uh, was struggling with this very issue. She said when she turned 40 years old, she inherited quite a bit of money from some trusts that were set up by uh, previous generations, and it was quite a bit of money. And she said it really, really was difficult for her to deal with that well. It was changing her relationships, people were taking advantage of her, it was really causing problems for her. And she made a lot of bad mistakes with relationships, with money, and all kinds of things. And she regrets the way it was done. So when her kids were young, she told them everything. She told them the amount of money, the dates, the, you know, everything. Her kids are now at high school and college ages, and she's finding they're, 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 you know, she's saying, work hard. And they're saying, why? We know it's coming. Why do I have to work for it? So it, it, she said, somewhere between those two extremes is where I probably should have been saying, but how would you know? And I tell you, it's an interesting time to deal with all this because family members are coming to people, like some of you might have had this, these very questions. That you go back two years ago, family members, children, grandchildren might have been asking you, hey, mommy, daddy, grandpa, are we wealthy? You know, because you know, I see your house, I see that our lifestyle, are we wealthy? Now they come to the same people and saying, are we poor? You know, is there anything left? Can you still afford those vacations we go on and things like that? Uh, and the, the general reaction of the parent or grandparent is to go one or two extremes again. They might often say don't worry, we've got plenty, it's in great hands, you know, you're being taken care of, don't worry. Those can be very disabling words. The other extreme is they say, you should
2: be worried, I'm worried. It's a disappearance in front of us. Well, now the kid can't sleep either. I mean, it's just,
1: again, somewhere between those two extremes is probably the right thing to say. So what can you say to family members? It's a great time to talk about world economy and how it relates to us. But what can you say that is spot on. And I'll hopefully give you some examples of that. But this idea when do we tell them? I think there's a, a better question than this, when do we tell them? Because this implies <coughs> that there's a date or an age at which point you should bring children and grandchildren into discussion of what we have, what they're going to get, what the you know, wealth-related issues are. Um, whether you have wealth or not, that's often people think there's a date or an age. I don't think that's the best question. I think there's a better question, which is, here's where they are today. They don't know the full extent of the situation. And here's where they will, will be down the road. Certainly, that's by the time we're gone, we'll figure it out, you know? Um, The right question, or at least a better question, seems to be, at that point in time, what confidence do you want them to have? What confidence do you want them to be and What capabilities do you want them to have? And how do you start a process today, as a family, to build that confidence and those capabilities in them? Well, that's a different question. It actually comes up with a whole bunch of different examples of opportunities. And philanthropy, as a family, is one of the tools we're seeing is very effective at building confidence and capability in family members. And not only what it means to be a member of the family, but what, how they can make decisions individually as well. And I'll give you some examples of what we're seeing families do around that. I mean, I think the envision that I helps me get my head around this is, I envision the many people we're dealing with are driving the train down the tracks. Which is them managing their finances, whatever it is. Managing their business, managing their retirement plan, whatever it is. And at some point, they look out the window at the family and think to themselves, how do we get the family on the train? You know, if we stop the train one day and bring them on board and show them the amount of money and all those statements and whatever the plan is, I used to participate in some of those meetings. I don't even recommend them anymore. I'm not saying it's not a great place to get to over time, but I definitely wouldn't start there. Well, then what do you do? Send them to Caboose and have them work their way forward by themselves or send them to somebody else's trains or learn how to drive a train in somebody else's tracks, not our tracks. And how do we get them on the train? The the healthy analogy I've seen seems to be, you've got a train going on in the tracks how do you encourage your family members to build their own set of tracks, to their own train up and running so they can set for your train over time? Now, when you mention that to most entrepreneurs, and I do a lot of work with entrepreneurs, when I mention that to most entrepreneurs, I say it similarly, but they usually hear me saying something different. They hear me saying, you have a train ground in the tracks. How do you build another set of tracks and put your family in that tracks? That's not what I'm saying. That mentality of I should do it for them is actually a symptom of the problem, not the solution. So how do you encourage them to do it? And what would that look like? And what's the role of, you know, engaging the family in that? Well, anyway, those are two of the big questions they asked. And the third one was, how do we break the paradigm of shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve in three generations? This was to refer to the notion that families that have been financially successful often build up wealth relatively quickly, maintain it for a while in the family, but at some point, it's not usually very long down the road, the money's gone. And that is a worldwide problem. In other cultures, they have similar paradigms to so, the shirt-sleeve-to-shirt-sleeve problem that we describe it here in the United States. But in other countries, for example, uh, India, one of the old proverbs there is peasant shoes to peasant shoes in three generations referring to of that same issue. In China, they say, in parts of China, one of the oldest proverbs there is rice cutting to rice cutting in three generations. In Mexico, they say first-generation traders, second-generation gentlemen, third-generation beggars. In front of that same issue. And those three countries don't have an estate tax. <laughs> and the reason that's important is, in the United States, very often people get their eye off the ball. They think the reason this happens in families is because of the estate tax system in the United States. Countries that no estate tax have the same problem, so something else is going on. Now, again, many of you may not have an estate tax problem, so you're not dealing with wealth-related issues. But whether you have an estate tax problem or not, if there are any financial resources in a family, How do we protect it and, you know, maybe preserve, help people longer term in the family is something most of us are quite interested in, even if you don't have significant wealth. Um, So this, actually, the answers that come up to help wealthy families in this area actually can help almost anybody. Because what you're finding in almost all the studies is families that tend to preserve their financial wealth longer term tend to be healthier families. You know, so almost any measure of how you measure the health of a family, Families that tend to preserve their financial wealth long-term tend to be healthier healthy families. So, whether you have financial wealth or not, if they're doing things to create that healthier family, why wouldn't we all do those things? And that's what I want to share with you today. So, it's not necessarily a wealth-related issue. I mentioned that business owners get this pretty quickly. A good example of that is I was speaking at the Forbes Family Business Conference in New York City this last year, and one of the um, advertisers there was the Family Business Magazine. And I happened to flip through the magazine before I was going to speak, and they had this article in there called Why Companies should be more like families. And the implication was because families have rich communication and rituals they adhere to and bonding through adversity and supportive network and shared vision and shared values. And and I thought, what families are they talking to? Um, For many of the families that I'm dealing with, many of these things are more the myth of family than the reality of family. And I really would like to see the article be titled, Almost the Opposite, Why Families Should Be More Like Companies. Not from a profit motive standpoint, but companies get this. You get the sense, and probably many of you have seen this in companies you've worked with or worked for or, or owned. Um, many times you see companies get this where they figure, who are our stakeholders? Maybe our management teams or our you know, people who work for us. And how do we get together for management off every now and then and think about where we try to go and how do we really take our capabilities and get there? We might go through Myers briggs testing to figure out what each other's capabilities are in communication style. We might come up with a mission statement. Businesses have been doing this for a couple of decades. Families have not been focusing on this anywhere near as much as they used to just intuitively focus on some of these things. So what we're seeing is families actually intentionally trying to step in and replace some of the things that have sort of fallen by the wayside that families used to do actually pretty well. I and mean, I think this this the premise you know, used to be quite intact. It's unfortunately not quite as intact as it used to be. Another example of that is one of the other speakers at the Forbes Family Business Conference was a guy named Jack Mitchell. And he was an entrepreneur, very successful, built a very successful business, sold it for a lot of money, and then wrote a book about how to be successful. And if you want to make a lot of money, this is the book for you. He still owns it. Oh, does he? I thought he sold it. Okay, well, thank you. He still owns it. But anyway, he's been very successful. And And he wrote this book about how to be successful. and... And the title is, Hug Your People? Sounds counterintuitive. But his premise is over here. You can't really read it, so I've typed it up over here for you. He said, you need to find out who are your stakeholders. And you need to be nice to these people. You need to trust them. They need to feel trusted by you. You need to instill pride in these people. Include them in decision-making so they don't feel like they're just following your request. But part of the process of coming up with these ideas. And generously recognize these people. When you talk with a family that's been multi-generational successful and preserving a the sense of family, and if they had any financial wealth, preserving the financial wealth, and you interview family members of what it's like being a member of that family, you get a very similar I- indication of these kinds of things that they felt within the family. Any thoughts? that makes sense? By the way, I'm really comfortable with you all taking, pla- or taking questions during the talk, so if there's anything you have thoughts about or questions about, please feel free to jump in. Well, anyway... The, uh, the shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve problem was where a lot of this research originally came from. Funding uh, funded by wealthier families, worried about losing their wealth, and their concern was—I'll I'll bring up their concern—whether they have financial wealth or not. This is just a backdrop for what some of the research came from. But really, it helps all of us. But their concern was: first generations create the wealth by definition. But you kind of have to. Second generations could go anywhere. They could make a lot more. They could maintain it. They could lose it all. Or if you have three children, you get one of each of these we hear. But we think of second generations as getting used to it. We're the kind of family that you know, lives in a certain community. The lifestyle becomes the norm. And there's a lot to be said about lifestyle choices and the effectiveness in the family that I'm not going to get into. I i not have time this morning. We can cover it during 2 and A if you'd like. But I do want to touch on one other thing you see very often between first and second generation, which is personality type. What you often find is first generation wealth creators are strong, confident decision makers. You know, you kind of have to be, if you want to make decisions and, you know, build well, you've got to make decisions and move on, you know. And, uh, you know, many of these people define themselves as type A. I was doing a meeting in uh, uh, Kansas City this week for a group of entrepreneurs, and I mentioned that one of them said, no, 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 we're not type A. And I knew this guy, and I thought, really? <laughs> you don't think you're type A? He said, no, we're double A. <laughs> you're right, I think that's correct. Uh, and that's great. If you want to build wealth. whether you, by the way, build wealth or not, many times parents have this kind of control um, approach at being a parent, what it means to be a parent. And, and when your children are young, you have to, but how do you transition into a mentor role? That's a different role. And many parents never make the transition. But anyway, he was uh, this notion of, of, you know, being a strong, confident decision maker is wonderful if you want to build wealth. It's not too great if you want to preserve wealth in the family stuff, and really build a mentoring program within a family. One of the studies found that children of these kinds of strong, confident decision-makers generally were more intelligent than the overall population. That's true, you see that in three economics. But you look further, they generally have a lower self-confidence about the students who are unwell than the general population. It doesn't mean they can't overcome that, but they also start out with a, a lower self-confidence about the students who are unwell than the gen- general population. I'll give you one quick example of that. One of the studies, a um, very small anecdotal study, asked a group of young teenagers, what's the
2: process of buying a new car? These people had never bought a new car before, so they shouldn't know that
1: much about it, right? Those that came from a modest background can tell you quite a bit about it. Because they saw the process happen right in front of them. They heard the conversation of what, you know, they could afford during dinner. They were probably strapped in the backseat for the test drive. Those that came from an affluent background made it sound like dads who drove home a new car today. And the more expensive the car was, the less likely the parent would have been to talk to the children about what they were doing children or grandchildren. You know, I understand the reason for that. You don't know, talk to an eight-year-old about an $80,000 car purchase. But the unintended consequence was they weren't having a chance to see how you make decisions as much as somebody coming from a more modest background was giving the children the opportunity to, to actually see how they make decisions on a daily basis. So how do you replace that? And that to me is the distinction between the big train and little train I was telling you about before. I don't want to bring my kids when they're younger or grandkids into discussions about big train activity. But could I bring them into discussion about little-train activity? Where they have a chance to see how I make decisions, and they learn how to make decisions themselves as well. And hopefully as a group, so that there's a team aspect of it. And again, what's the role of philanthropy uh, in that process? Well, third generation, again, could go anywhere. But if it hasn't already happened, that's where you typically see the drop-off from the financial standpoint, um, the wealth-enjoyment generation. The next generation, again, could go anywhere. Well, they can't go down anymore, but they go over sideways. And if there's a low period here for a while, we call that the wealth lamentation generation. They lament the wealth. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what my family is. We're right about here in my family. <laughs> we really are. My great-grandpa was a very wealthy man. He owned an operated a large investment management trust company in Boston. It great success, great prominence is one of the biggest and best known, certainly in Boston, but in many parts of the country it's very well known. In fact, just as an example of how big it was, I, mean, I worked for BNY Mellon. If B&Y Mellon was a three-legged stool, the three legs of that stool are Bank of New York, Mellon, and the organization my great-grandfather was president for many years. The reason we have our investment management headquarters in Boston is because of the company that my great-grandfather ran from. It was called the Boston State Boston <coughs> Trust Company, or the Boston Company, and it was very well known. In fact, he was uh, pretty well known in Boston. He started something called the Boston Foundation. This again, guy named Charles Rogerson. And they now have something called the Rogerson Legacy Society, and named after him. And uh, there's a picture of him over here and a little story about him. But he had a lot of money. The Boston Foundation <coughs> now has almost $900 million. This is started by my great-grandfather. Well, his estate plan was designed to get the bulk of his money down to the family on his great-grandson. And it's gone. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, but it's not gone because of bad investment management. He owned an investment management company. I don't think he can just invest your money better out of this problem. It's not gone because of that tax money. You great tax money. It's gone because that branch of our family offered actually text vertical thinking instead of horizontal thinking. Well, what is vertical thinking in a family? And what's so normal about it? And what's so damaging about it? And what's horizontal thinking look like? By the way, whether you have money or not, horizontal families tend to be much stronger families and uh, preserve the sense of family as well as if they had financial wealth longer term. And I'll give you some examples of that in just a minute. Well, anyway, uh, Mike, this is my great-grandfather, this is one of his sons, Charles Rogerson, Jr. He was one of the founding members of a, of a group of attorneys called ACTEC. This is a very well-known group of, uh, it wasn't called ACTEC in the beginning, it was a different name, but he was a very well-known attorney, so the estate plan they had in the family was fantastic. It
3: wasn't an estate plan, problem. And so I, I think that estate planning is great, but adding
1: some of the things we're going to talk about today to what you're doing from your estate plan standpoint, we're finding to be much more robust. And whether you have children, or grandchildren, or no children, uh, I think you're going to find some of these concepts to be hopefully interesting. Well, down the road, we hope <coughs> to we can build some wealth. I'm hoping that for my kids. Mm-hmm. The kind of careers you see, first generation, you often see the entrepreneurs and real estate developers and the CEOs, you know, the people that build significant wealth, like those uh, short sellers and Ponzi schemers and things like that. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs>
1: second generation could be any kind of career, but it's interesting, if you look at the studies there, very often, second generations go further with re- their education than the first generations did. And you'll quite often find the first college degree or first master's degree in a family that comes from a second generation or a future generation. And because of that, it's not uncommon you find a lot of second generations or future generations more into more professional careers. There are many ways to become a professional. I mean, you can start out with nothing to become a phenomenal professional, and as many of you know. But it's interesting you see a higher percentage of children uh, that become professionals coming out of families that have a little bit more financial wherewithal. Uh, One of the studies that Lee Hausner did, she's one of the real top psychologists in this area, she asked a group of parents, uh, actually, she asked a group of of parents, what would you like your children to be when they grow up? And most of them, these were entrepreneurs that she was mostly dealing with, most of them said, we love our kids to be entrepreneurs. In the same family, she asked the children, what do you think your parents would like you to be when you grow up? Almost all of them, it was like 85% thought that their parents wanted to be professionals. So it's interesting how there was a a lack of communication between the expectation there going forward. Uh, but anyway, it's very common You see a lot of professions. Third generation, again, could be any kind of career. But we have a number of clients who talk with the grandchildren that decide to become actors, musicians, and ski patrol and park rangers. first time I illustration, I was a little bit nervous how they are going to take some of that you know, in, the, in these categories. But at this point, like, one of our clients was laughing so hard, we had to stop and wait. <laughs> and he finally stopped laughing. He said, what's so funny? He said, I got four kids. He said, I got two actors in a musician and a ski patrol. <laughs> 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 really a random, but, uh, but the fact <laughs> that, that, that they laugh when I bring this up to <laughs> some degree is actually a symptom of the problem itself. Because these kinds of people over here and these kinds of people over here very often give these kinds of people over here the impression that they have less work. Even when the parents and grandparents don't intend to do it, it's amazing how often the children might pick this up. Uh, A good example, again, Lee Hausner did an interesting study where she asked a group of parents, how important is your money to you? Now, it was important, but it wasn't at the top of the list. At the top of the list was typically health and spouse and family, you know, and children and things like that, and sometimes faith sometimes community, sometimes employees or, you know, neighbors. There were a lot of things that were up there. Money was up there, too, but it typically wasn't at the top of that list. In the same study, she asked the children in those families, how important is your parents' money to your parents? They put it at the top of the list. Why? They were going by observation. When mom and dad said it was important, you need to be here, we've got an important discussion, and we've got our advisors coming in, what were we talking about? Something about the money. The children were getting the impression that money was more important to the parents than the parents actually thought. And that trend, by the way, in the last year or so, you see, it almost accelerate as parents get the kids together and talk largely about money, as opposed to what's the broader context of wealth in our family. Well, families that tend to give the wrong definition of net worth tended to be the families that actually were losing their wealth the quickest. Well, if net worth is not a dollar sign of the numbers, that is, I mean the money in the family, what is family net worth? One of the attorneys that does quite a bit of work in this area, a guy named Jake Hughes, found that families that were succeeding long-term at preserving the sense of family and preserving their wealth were defining their wealth differently. They include things like human capital, the unique individuals in the family, that strong sense of need. Do they feel that in the family? And families are focusing on that. I actually did a family meeting a couple years ago where every year when they get together for their family meeting, they start the family meeting by talking about how have we added to our human capital in our family since last year? It's a really interesting conversation. And it's one that new spouses can jump right into, too. You know, what do they bring to the table? What is it that they bring to the family table along the way? <laughs> Secondly, intellectual capital, which is not so much what schooling went to, you know, Princeton per se, but it's what, what do we have as our family culture to pass on? It's not our intellect from our schooling, but our intellect from our family. What is our heritage and traditions and maybe faith, but what does it mean to be us? Is there a we going on? I was using this example in New York City at a, a meeting for a group called Path North. And one of the women that was there,
2: she, when, her, when her husband died prematurely, uh, quite young, they had started a hotel chain,
1: but it wasn't worth very much when he died. And then she took it to phenomenal success, and eventually went public and sold it and everything, and she was worth a tremendous amount. But she, um, when I used this analogy, she stopped me and said, you know, Tom, it's interesting, well, after my husband died, when I was trying to make decisions about what to do with this hotel chain, Whenever I had one of these me decisions going on, I tried to turn that M upside down and turn it into a we and bring the family into a discussion of well, what we should we, should we do. Her little turn of phrase there really captivated people. And during lunch, she was glommed on by a lot of people. How did you do it? What did you do? How did you get your family involved in helping make decisions without you know, uh, messing them up with the numbers? So is there a we going on? And uh, this is the part that we're seeing families focus a lot of building, the unique, strong, independent individuals and their children, but they're just letting this part slide. And that's having a dramatic effect on their ability to preserve wealth and family. Um, the third was social capital. And I referenced Charlie Collier on this because Charlie wrote a book just about social capital, or more largely about social capital. But it's the idea of how do we communicate, how do we deal with the world around us as a family? How do we evidence that? If you own a business, you can evidence that by how you treat employees and clients. But all of us can evidence it by how we deal with charitable with organizations. You know, do we give to causes and why? I did a study up in the New England area where I asked a number of our clients how many charities they gave to and the names of the charities. And it was interesting because, you know, you get eight or nine or ten charities that the parents would give to. But then I asked the family members, the children and grandchildren, you know, do you know the charities your parents or grandparents give to? And they would usually be able to tell you, yes, they give, and they'd usually be able to name one or two of the charities, but they rarely could mention more than that. I'm all in favor of not telling the children and grandchildren the numbers that you give to charity, but why not talk about the organizations? And maybe even prioritize them. What a great way of giving tunnel vision into your heart. Why do you care about these places? What did they do for you? How did they help you you grow and and prosper? So this idea of philanthropy to not just talk about, but but actually really witness and care and responsibility and values and purpose. And philanthropy can be a powerful tool. So philanthropy then became part of the definition of how families view the definition of their wealth. And finally, financial <laughs> capital, the stocks and bonds and real estate, and maybe that's the least important. Sounds like heresy coming from a BNY melon. But I have to believe it. And it's the interplay between these first types of wealth and a family and the fourth, where the breakdown often exists. And I'll give you an example of how you can use this even now. Uh, one of my friends, not a wealthy uh, individual at all, but
2: this last Christmas, he decided to write a family annual report to his
1: family. And it was four pages long. The first page was human capital. We are bursting at the seams. And then he gave examples of things like who graduated from college and what experiences individuals have had, how they grew as individuals in the family. And it was tear you know. Second page was intellectual capital. We are bursting at the seams. And then he gave examples of how the family members were doing things together, building a sense of what they're doing, you know, learning from each other. Again, tear jerky type kind of stuff. And then social capital. Third page, we're bursting at the seams. The organization we're getting to really need what we're doing. They're making a difference now. We're really seeing an impact in what we've been doing for a while. We've built a firm foundation. And then you got the fourth page, financial capital. Good thing that first three pages are doing well because we're really doing badly here. You know? But at least they put it in perspective. Does that make sense? I thought it was really interesting. There's a wonderful example of something that any of us could do. Um, One family liked this definition of wealth so much, they decided to use it as a family mission statement. Now, do any of you have a family mission statement? It's very unusual. Do any of you have an organizational mission statement, though, with organizations that you work with? It's a lot of you, yeah. Um, 20 years ago, that wasn't common. Now, it's very common. We're seeing families uh, trying to adopt the same kind of concept. Why wouldn't we get together, at least for a little while, Think about where we want to go. What do we think our family should look like 20 years from now? And how do we take the people that we have now and hopefully work towards getting there? And it's kind of interesting how one family liked that definition of wealth so much they decided to use it as their family mission statement. They said, human capital, love of self. Do we build self-esteem in our family? Secondly, intellectual capital, love of family. Why? What's so special about us? Third, social capital, love of others. How do we witness that through family philanthropy? and our giving to Princeton, or are giving to our city <coughs> god, or, synagogue, or organizations organization we care about. Fourth, spiritual capital, love of God. They were a very faith-based family. They actually had biblical verses rather than government mission statement. And then finally, financial capital, love of creation. I thought I was going to say love of money, but I the have a word that. Uh, but an asterisk here. And the asterisk is really cool because it leads to the final sentence that says, the purpose of financial capital is to enhance human, intellectual, social, and spiritual capital. They still talk about the money when they get together as the family, and, you know, what we're going to do about it, and, and things like that. But, but this was able to put that conversation in context. Does that make sense? Another family that we're dealing with, they said, we really like this. As a group, they said, we really like this. They said, the, and that we really like the fact that God is in there, too. This is a very faith-based family down in Dallas. And they said, we really like the fact that God is in this. The only problem is, they said, the God that we believe in doesn't want to be number four. So they change here for the spiritual capital is the crucible that holds all the other forms of capital in their family. There's no right or wrong answer, but, but it's just interesting how different families are trying to incorporate some aspect of this uh, you know with family discussions. And whether they have a lot of money or a little money, even if you
2: have no money,
1: talking about what does it mean to be you, what does it mean to be us, what does it mean to be you know contributing to the, to the world around us, those are not bad con- conversations for families to be having. Well, the second, there are two things you generally found that families where preserving wealth long term we're doing. One of them was that defining wealth differently. And let me just, uh, let me jump to the really kind of work just for a minute and give you a sense of where some of this research comes from. We do a lot of work with family offices. Family offices are for families that have a great deal of money, where they've got enough money they can actually hire their own attorneys, hire their own uh, accountants, uh, investment professionals, and they hold them together in their own office building. I and mean, you literally call it a family office for that reason. And they do a lot of work just for the family. And we work with some family offices that are relatively new, just, you know, built their wealth in the last generation and are doing certain things. And also we work with some family offices that are many generations old. You know, not not that many survive for many generations, but there are some out there, and we work with a lot of them as well. If you look at the agenda of a family meeting for a relatively new family office, you're going to see the agenda is popular with things like investments, taxes, planning, fiduciary, you know, trustee, you know, Basically, money-related issues. But if you look at the agenda for family office that's been in existence for four or five generations, you find that the agenda of the family meeting is largely... Yes, it has some of the investment stuff, too. But it's largely populated with things like, what does it mean to be us? What are we doing with philanthropy, too? What's our foundation doing? Things like that. And what I love about what I do is, you don't have to have money to be populating your family agenda with what does it mean to be us. And uh, so you're going to tend to be using philanthropy in some of these areas as well. But some of the things you've seen them doing differently, these ones that have succeeded long term, are one thing would be governance. Governance is, people get confused by the term. People think, you know, it's I mean constitutions and committees and all these things. Governance is nothing other than how do we make a group decision. You know, group decision. If we want to change the thermostat in this room right now, that's governance. Who decides? Me, you, men, women, young, old well, that's governance. How do we make group decisions? I was about to use that example one time at a family meeting and about governance in the thermostat. And just before we used the illustration of the thermostat as family governance, the father could have turned it down. <laughs> uh, I didn't ask anybody. As it it's right for me, it be right for you. Yes? You use the term family office, and you kind of implied what it means, but could you elaborate a little bit more what it means in your context? A family office um, is... What, what they're now doing is families that have enough financial wealth are recognizing does it make sense for us to um, have a institutional uh, capabilities that help all of our family members. Instead of each one of our children as they inherit money, finding their own attorney, their own accountant, their own, you name it, why don't we hire one that can work with the whole family, that can coordinate the taxes? They can, we can have asset allocation decisions um, made more intelligently. Instead of everybody, you know, one person having an over-allocation towards bonds, and one having too many stocks, and one having too much of this or too much of that, If we had one person overseeing everybody's investments, it'll really help us make sure we don't all, you know, uh, just dramatically vary along the way. Family offices then get to the point where they realize, now that we have this thing, why don't we have this thing that we we have in these professionals start to do other services for the family, like maybe run our foundation, organize our family meetings, run education programs for our children and grandchildren. And so now what you're seeing is family offices are becoming much more robust of services they're actually providing for the individual family. Usually a family doesn't have enough financial wealth to justify setting up the family office until they have $60 million or something. You know, it's a very large number. Um, it's not the kind of thing that I could afford and justify at all. But it does, my only point about it was though, what they're doing at that level that's helping them serve family could help anybody. Granted, we may not have the money they have. But the things they're doing could help everybody. I'm going to give you an example of that. In the area of governance, as an example, we're seeing some of the family offices create committees of family members to manage some money, to teach each other how to manage money as, as committees. You know? I, I used to tell my wife about it. She said, well, we ought to do the same thing. <laughs> I said, we don't have enough money, we can't afford it. She said, no, we'll do it with a lot less. What well, we now do is we set aside one week of our vacation every year. And my wife and I come up with a budget for that vacation. So now I'm at risk here. And we put 85% of that that budget in an investment account a year and a half before the vacation. You with me so far? Mm-hmm. And we let our kids invest that money for a year. <coughs> so if they do well, we go on the A vacation. <laughs> if they do kind of average, we go on the B vacation. Mm-hmm. Holidays some place, visit family. If they do badly, we go camping. The first we did this, they didn't know any better. They swung for the fences. They bought all these penny stocks of toy companies, and if it was dot-cool, they bought it at the time frame. And we didn't tell them not to. That's one of the hardest things for the men and people that I've done it. They can't help themselves from stepping in and saying, no, here's why you shouldn't do that. Okay, well, I teach them, you're really good listeners. But who do they listen to when you're gone? It's a of purpose, of the exercise. So we didn't tell them not to. And they bought all this dot stuff. And we went camping. At the not get of it's their also. It's their also. That's a really important notion. You notice something very different. There was a consequence of the whole family based on our children's decisions.
3: That oh, your
1: kids. Oh, okay. When we started, the oldest was 14, the youngest was seven. <coughs> um, but what's really important about this is there was a consequence to everybody in the family based on our children's decision. That's unusual. Usually, parents think they're solving this by giving each one of the children's money. Here's five thousand dollars. Here's five thousand dollars. Here's five thousand dollars. Manage it. Copy me the statements. I want you to know what mutual funds are, stocks, are bonds, are. You know, great. But what's the consequence to the whole family if one of those kids does well with their account and another one does badly with their account? There's no consequence to the whole family. In our case, our kids are managing less money, and this consequence of everybody in the family. Many times what you're finding is children in families, the first major decision that they usually make about some level of wealth in the family is very often, sometimes, on selling the parents' estate. That's a really bad time to learn how to make decisions as a group. I mean, because they're bringing all kinds of, first of all, there's greed going on, then they're bringing all kinds of, you know, intrigue to the family table. And, you know, and, and they have spouses, too, coming in with their agendas. And it, it often creates this very divisive thing happening around the settlement of the state. What we're seeing in families of preserving wealth, though, and preserving the sense of family are creating environments where families can learn how to make decisions together so that when they have to make those kinds of decisions, they have a pattern. Does that make sense? So in our case, our kids are managing less money. That's not to me. That's not big training activity. That's little training activity. Our kids aren't managing my retirement account, but then managing this little vacation pool has already given them more capability. If they had to step in to manage my retirement account tomorrow, they'd do a better job than I would have ever. I promise you. The second year we did this, our kids were so nervous at putting mom and dad back in the tent again. <laughs> Stop. Stop. Uh, by the way, if you don't want to go camping, you know, the third choice doesn't have to be camping. It can be a shorter vacation, but there's are still a to everybody else, <coughs> you, you, uh, on the thing you're letting them participate in. But anyway, for us, we like camping, so it wasn't that big a deal. But anyway, the kids were so nervous that the second year they put all the money in money market accounts, they wouldn't lose anything. They didn't lose anything, but they didn't make anything either. And we went to a holiday in some place and visited the family. my wife and I were thinking, this isn't working too well. <laughs> but the third year we did this was worth every minute we put into it. The third year we did this, the kids started the conversation by saying, what's the minimum vacation we're willing to take? How much do we set for that? And how do we invest the rest of it at Disney World? We thought that was a great conversation for a... See, at the time, there was 16 and 14 and 13 you know, and, and, uh, and 10. But and that was a great conversation for the remaining, I thought, at those ages. And to see the old ones the young ones, we were really thrilled with that. Um, But that's very different than we're seeing most families deal with well. Especially, remember these control-type parents that we're dealing with. Most of the successful parents in this country tend to be a little bit more, you know, comfortable making decisions. And they often play a role of making more decisions in the family. And that's having an effect of raising, as I said before, these children that have less confidence about making decisions themselves. And uh, this little train activity is to try and replace that. Give them a role of making decisions when they're younger. Um, another example of horizontal versus vertical thinking. Horizontal is, is when well vertical thinking is when there's a leader with a bunch of followers, kinda of like what I was describing that kind of vertical thinking, leader, bunch of followers, and you know they're dad and mom, whatever, and we got a you know. horizontal is really kind of a collaborative structure, multi-generational collaborative structure going on. <coughs> this is easier for people like me, and for many of you that worked in major corporations or work in corporations. Um, I go to work every day and I have to collaborate. I have to work with my colleagues, you know. And it's easier for me to go home at the end of the day and collaborate with family because that's what I had to do all day long. But for an entrepreneur or a business leader that was running a the park, they, at the end of the day, the buck stops for them. You know, or at least, you know, a lot of responsibility stops for them. And it's harder for them that they can think vertically and work. Even if they try and encourage collaboration, they still going to make the ultimate decision. It's, it's easier for them to go home at the end of the day and, and be vertical at home. And uh, so how do you, you know, have this transition to horizontal thinking. i give you a mental picture of it, too. There were books about it, but a mental picture of it. Do you remember the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? The Greek family in that movie was a very horizontal family. Big family, knew each other
2: really well, communicated like great. You got the sense they knew each other's faults, but family trumped
1: that stuff. Did you get that sense? The guy's family in the movie was very vertical. They had very little communication in the guy's family in the movie. But, you know, the horizontal family, even though the father of the Greek family he was a very vertical thinker. He was a very dictatorial vertical thinker. you got to sense a good, strong, horizontal family you can even deal with someone like that. There's a great quote from the movie where the mother said, yes, the father is the head, but the mother is the neck.
3: And she can turn it. I
1: thought show you an example of them doing just that. They all felt really empowered by the whole process. But the guy's family was very vertical thinking. I don't know if you remember when he introduced his parents to his new fiancé. They sat in front of the fireplace in and connected, uh, and you know had cocktails, and they had nothing to say to each other. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you know build your own unique, strong, independent individuals in your family, and so that they don't even have to talk to each other. I mean, very classic kind of uh, vertical thinking. Rothschilds were a good example of horizontal family. Vanderbilt's a good example of vertical family. Um, in the books, and I'll let you read the books on them because I don't have time to get into it this morning. But I wanted to mention one thing. I don't work with the Rothschilds, but I talked to one of them recently, and it was really interesting what he said because he said. Um, because we have these family meetings, and we, we really do encourage everybody to come, whether you've got money or not, we encourage everybody to come and get to be a member of the family. That's important to us. Even though some family branches have a lot of money and some have very little, this notion of what does it mean to be us? And he said, but when you're at these meetings, if somebody had a, a need for a resource, they're more likely to dip into the family pool to find that resource than immediately go outside the family pool. And he said, it's like kind of chuckling, so what's so funny is I'm seeing all these websites now trying to create networks. And, you know, LinkedIn and Facebook and all these networks. And he says, we feel like we have the first family network. And we really benefit by having that network of trying to keep it to know each other. Does that make sense? So anyway, how do you just add a little bit of intention to trying to create this or preserve it? The thir- third thing you see differently in families is family philanthropy, and I mentioned it before. Family philanthropy was part of the definition of what wealth is in a family, but it also was one of the intentional activities around wealth. And let me give you another example that my wife and I are doing just to show you that you can do this with very small sums. My wife and I, we've got four kids. we now have the process. process, it took us a while well to get here, by the way, but we now have to give away $5,000 a year. They each give away $1,000, personal endorsement. We love you, love what you care about, you will give her what you want. There's a little bit of a match in that, but we want them to scheme the game, not just give away mom and dad's money. So there's a little bit of a match in that. But the 5,000, they have to agree on. That's a piece that most families don't have. And that's the piece that's made the biggest difference for us. And it's really cool to see them talk about where they want to give it and how they want to give it. I was telling my sister that she and her husband live next door, but they've got two kids. And she said, we see the difference in your joke. This is really cool what you're doing. We want to do the same thing. And we said, great, do it. Tell us how it goes. And she said, no, we want to do it with you. <laughs> and we thought, hmm, why not? Why can't we operate horizontally? Even if that's not the way we're, we're <clears throat> raised. So what we now do is we've got four kids. She's got two kids. My wife now with our four kids now set aside $5,500 for this process. My sister with her two kids set aside $3,500 for this process. Each one of our kids gives you $1,000 personal endorsement. Each one of her kids gives you $1,000 personal endorsement. Our kids give away the $5,000 that they agree on her kids give with the third thousand if they agree on it. The last 1000 all six months to agree on it. So how much are we investing in the cousins making a decision together? Only $1,000. Where's the biggest difference in the relationship on that last $1,000? And it's really cool to see, you know, how they make decisions and how they're learning from each other and where they want to get to and supporting each other's, you know, um, activities. Like, uh, I'm raising money for this cause. Could you help me out? And, I'm, you know, it's really, really interesting to see. And it's fitting into a lot of the things you're seeing families do, or you're seeing younger generations do now, where they're getting very actively involved in a lot of volunteerism. And it's really, there's a movement going on, but it's interesting to see parents be able to fund, or grandparents be able to fund some of this, and be somewhat involved in what they're doing and help
2: support it, and have those ideas that these kids are getting involved in help pull the family together at their generation, not just build unique, strong, independent individuals alone. Does that
1: make sense? Any thoughts about that? Have you seen that happen in your own families? Uh, no? Well, I tell you, it's really interesting what we're seeing here. These, to me, are not examples of big train activity. <coughs> my kids have, not. my wife, I are doing philanthropy above the level. <laughs> okay, we're not bringing them into that. But this little train activity, we think, is preparing them to step into its roles in large levels later on. Yes? This works on a small scale. Can you think... How would your client families respond to this idea? Have you you tested this spreading to the cousins and the cousins out? Well, we're learning. Remember I was talking about family offices? Rothschilds are a great example. The Rothschilds, they're talking about fourth cousins that are coming together at these meetings. The family branches that still have a lot of money in the Rothschild family are willing to fund a little bit of philanthropy that everybody at the family meeting is able to. they're finding that's an exercise worth funding because it's building, <coughs> they're finding networks um, within the family that are very beneficial to them. Uh, but if you look at family offices, remember I was saying that family offices that are fifth or sixth generation, if you look at the agenda for the family meeting, you'll find that a lot of the activities are family building exercises. I, I did a family meeting uh, in, um, as an example, in Boston Harbor. And uh, this is for a longer term family with cousins, a whole bunch of cousins, fits, etc. <coughs> Six Cousins, things like that. And they get together on the, on the docks down at Boston Harbor. And they sit dressed casually and be prepared to be surprised. And I, I, they told me I'm going to present to them. So I'm bringing all my bags and schlepping along and all this stuff. But anyway, we get there. We get on a ferry and go to an island in the middle of Boston Harbor. And there's, that's where they have an Outlook Island Program called Thompson Island Outlook Island Program. And they ran the family through ropes courses in the morning. And, and the physical exercise, how did you get grandma over that 10 foot wall? Like that. <laughs> the older generation, the older generation was encouraged not to talk. They were only allowed to say, you don't feel comfortable doing that. So one of the grandmothers did go up the wall and the other one said, I don't want to go. Um, that's fine. But it was, what it was was an exercise to show the younger generation how to communicate with each other and make decisions and who was better at make decisions. And so to me, I, I'm learning that this works from people that are doing it. I'm not telling you. I think this might work because it worked for us. I've worked. I'm doing this because I saw other families doing it and it worked and it's benefiting. It is benefiting us. Do
3: you have a question? I was wondering
1: at what age do you feel children are ready for this? You mentioned. Yeah, not a age of your child right now. you not on not Well, actually, um, I only mentioned it that you said that you were i up there, but anyway, yeah. i never presumed to say yeah. something. They have to it so that's Not a, a massive, unless I'm actually, unless you've been away for labor. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> exactly. I made that mistake once before. Maybe, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but Jolene Godfrey's book, Raising Financially Fit Kids, the best book to give you a sense of age when you can do this. Whether you're dealing with children or grandchildren, um, her book is fantastic. They're all written up in the, uh, it's all listed in there, but it's a stage one resource that I recommend her book. And um, what I love about her books, she kind of breaks it down into different categories. From 3 to 13, you can be doing things for kids.
2: They're not learning how to
1: make decisions, they're learning patterns and vocabulary. So that, like, for example, you can take them to the zoo and talk about the fact that, you know, would you like to adopt one of these animals while we're here? Because we didn't pay enough to feed all these animals when we walked in the door. So they take gifts for people who want to help out. You know, you can bring them on campus here the uni weekend talk about, you know, we really want to sponsor a scholarship program here. They're learning vocabulary, they're not participating in decision-making. But when they get to be 13, they start to get a sense of self. You can actually start to do some of the testing, I'm going to show you in a minute. And you can engage them in actually
2: making decisions. But it's easier if you've got the patterns and vocabulary established with the younger generation. When they get to be 15, they often
1: will keep going. Trying to start this with a 15 or 16 year old doesn't mean you can't do it. It's just harder because they often are, you know, a little edgy at that age. Yes.
2: We've um, tried something like uh, family philanthropy. Well, we put the kids on
1: the advisory committee for a um, fund on our grandma. And one of the problems we have is that um, kids who are 13 or 14 or 15 are so overprogrammed. We have, a hard, we have a hard time getting the same zip code to, uh, to figure this out. I and mean, it's not likely the next door to each other anymore. They right. you know, one lives in Ohio and one lives in Indiana. And, uh, it's a great point. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and we're seeing that as well. But I, I would um, what we found that if you have a chance to start earlier, they're often more willing to stick with it. But the other thing we're seeing that makes a huge difference is how philanthropy is introduced to the family. Um, if I come home with a great idea like family philanthropy, and I
2: institute, and I tell my kids, "Hey, look, we're, this is really good—a great idea. We're going to give you know get each kid a thousand
0: dollars, and you get a thousand dollars together, and we want to do this in, in
1: honor of you know whatever some organization or some individual in the family." That wasn't perceived in some cases as a we decision by them. That was perceived as a me decision as a parent. Um, what we're seeing that the difference in how it's introduced is huge. Uh, and how the opposite way you're you hope that the 12-year-old says I'm really interested in helping X. Right. right. What's the,
2: what's the <laughs> alternative?
1: Yeah, well, we, you know, and we, one of the studies that, again, I'll, I'll reference a family office study, even though it's it a lot of money, it still rel- relates to all of us. One of the studies that we've done, that we actually funded, asked people for family offices. Can you name some things your family office has done over the generations that were really good ideas? that we all should do, and so some and things were really bad, ideas. that we all should avoid. They did This is great, ideas. we all should do, and some things don't, don't touch. There was one thing on both of those lists. <laughs> Only one thing was on both of those lists, and that was family philanthropy. But how they introduced it, how they used it, was quite different. Those that said it was negative, you've got a sense that the, the, whole thing was, the whole plan was designed by mom and dad behind closed doors with the attorney. They set up the amount of money, the foundation, when it gets funded, how many board seats, what the role is, what, you know, the whole thing was basically set up by the parents behind closed doors. I and mean, the children felt in many cases like, you know, we were kind of at some point told this is what we should do because it, that's what the parents expected us. Those that said it was one, one of the most powerful tools in the family, though, you found generally because way of bringing younger generations into a giving process at earlier ages where they felt they could put, 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 put their fingerprints on this thing. When I mentioned to you what my wife and I are doing, I said to you, we got to this point over time. And then I told them what we were doing. We actually started
2: very small, and we encouraged our kids. If there was an idea we wanted to get into, their, into
1: the, their lexicon, we would not hold a meeting and then tell them the idea. We would try and float the idea into one of them at a time, you know, separately, and if one of them liked it, say, well, why don't we get together? You can, you know, put something, or we can try and endorse it. So it would be their idea at the meeting, not our idea. But well, let's like, take, take me through how you floated the idea. Like, so you're sitting there with
3: your five-year-old at the zoo,
1: it's easy for me to tell you how I floated. it. Um, it was easy for me to float it in my sister's children, and for her to float it in my children was for me. And so, let me give you an example of how I do it with clients, because um, because this is why we recommend you, to have the ability, um, to use some of the outside resources to float these ideas, not you coming home with them, not you highlighting a book that I'm going to show you and then telling your kids you have to do it, but give them the book and let them read it, and hopefully they'll, you know, ask them what you like. And if they like some part of it, then try and endorse it. But, you know, for example, when we do family meetings now, I'll try and ask the parents, would it be reasonable that you might want your kids to give some money to charity? They might say, well, yeah. And I'd say, well, what scale are you thinking of? Would you let them make, you know, let's say, a thousand dollars each? You know, so $5,000, you know. Would you be willing to let them give that to causes that you hate right in your face, and you'd be okay with that? You know, I've got to make sure that this is little trained enough that they are not to rebel, okay? And if they come up with something and they say, oh yeah, 5000 is a reasonable number, uh, and we really want to see our kids, you know, so that's worth it. It's a good investment at least in you know, a first time, and hopefully it will do something really good with it. I say, great. Let me float that number at the family meeting. And so then at the family meeting, I would float the idea when I'm talking to the kids, do so you think you'd want to maybe give, what if your parents, I'll let you give $5,000, but how would you do that? You, what would it look like? And they like the idea, and then they turn to the parents and they say, you know, is this something you think we could do? The parents are going,
2: gee, I'm...
1: Yes, I could do that. Do you yeah. really think you guys can make it work, though? I don't want to waste this money. Now the kids have got a responsibility to prove to parents that it was a good idea that the parents funded their idea, as opposed to the other way around.
3: So maybe the parents become like the wife in the big factory
1: wedding. <laughs> <laughs> we try to empower the kids. Yeah, to feel like and I don't mean to make it sound like we're trying to totally, you know, to, to you know, lie to them or something like that. It's just we're trying to do a, a good result if they're involved in the creation of the idea, they're empowered by the idea, they, they've got a stake in the game. If they're not, if they're not part of creating the idea, they, we're finding in the studies that they just typically are not buying into it as much as you would have liked or thought. And it might go a whole different direction. They might say, we want to do this in honor of grandma. They might say, we don't want to do it. They might say it's something different. Like, we want to do it in honor of the next generation. We don't even know yet. You know? Um, but that's often we're finding to be something that's made different and I, let me tell you one other thing about like this. Jay Hughes had a brilliant line for, the, for all these different ideas that are out there. He said, look, all these things are you recommending, to Tom. And all the things that he's other families do as well. He said, these ideas, they don't work. And I totally agree with him. These ideas, let I me mean, show you, they don't work. And I say that because if I let you these ideas work, you're setting yourself up for, for you know, failure. What he said is this, and this is really key. He said, each of these things you try slightly increases your percentage of likelihood of success. Now, if you try enough you know, things, it's like a 50% of You can dramatically affect the outcome. So would I try Absolutely. Do I expect it to, to succeed? Not necessarily, but I hope it does. And I'm going to try, and I'm trying lots of things. I can tell you a bunch of them that didn't work in our family. I'm kind of laying out the ones that did more work in our family. But the result of trying for a while has been a very significant difference in our kids coming with ideas now that I just can't believe how, how much more is coming from them than it's coming from me. Does that make sense? i am not be able
0: to discourage you by saying that, but a good point. Uh,
1: yes, uh, I like to raise the issue of uh, donor-advised funds. As, well, I, I don't know what you haven't gotten to it yet, uh, or you didn't need to, but donor-advised funds as a vehicle for accomplishing a whole bunch of the things that you are trying to accomplish, for putting out for us as good ideas. I think they're, they're great. I don't know how many of you know what a donor-advised fund is, but you can go to a community foundation and um, you can go to any one of your communities, I'm sure, has, or at least within miles of you, has a community foundation. I was just doing some work with the Kansas City Community <coughs> Foundation, one of the donors just uh, this last week. But there are community foundations all over the country. And some of the uh, organizations like Fidelity has one, and Schwab has one. So there's a bunch of them around there. But it's, a, it's an umbrella charitable organization that shelters sub-accounts. And I could go to the, you know, the Schwab Foundation or something, and I can set up the Tom Rogers Lee Fund. You know, the basement room fund. I call it whatever I want.
2: And I can transfer stock into that, which is the right thing to do, but transferring stock, appreciate it, that has
1: appreciation, and be having is a great way to give to, to charitable causes. But I can transfer stock into that, and then I can have it sold, no capital gain, and then I can have checks written back to charities that I want. To Princeton. To, you know, my hospital, my, you know, synagogue. You know you name it. I have. It. But it's a wonderful tool, and I totally agree with you, to allow your family to step in and feel like there's something that they're stepping in, you know, there's, there's a, a, an infrastructure to what they're actually starting to run. They can actually manage the money. They can make investment management choices that they're given by the by the organization. Um, they can have to choose, you know, what kind of cause they should be given through. You can go to any legitimate 501 c in charity country. Some of the families that we have that have private foundations, will also establish a donor-advised fund, like you're describing, and let that be the thing that they use to introduce charity to their children, giving that to run, hopefully building their, the capability that so they can step into the private foundation or the, what are the larger donor, uh, donor ideas later on. We've got some families that have multiple donor-advised funds. They start some for branches of the family, and then they have one that does something for the whole family so it's a total. So it's, it's a wonderful tool. One of the other aspects that we see beneficial of having donor-advised funds, though, is community foundations, some of them are getting to the point now, where they're pulling together donors and donor families together so you can learn from each other. What are you guys doing? In fact, you know, we've seen, um, I know some of the times when Princeton holds events like this, for donors to talk to each other about what are you doing with your family? What are, that's some of, some of the best ground to learn about some of these ideas. So, anyway, I think they're great. I hope I've covered it the way you would have liked, but I think they're great. Yeah. Any One more point? Yes.
3: Yeah, I come from a generation whose parents didn't discuss finances. I was four years old, I had no idea how much money my, my father had died three years before. I had no idea. and You just didn't ask your mother, how much money do we have? Right. I knew really we were fairly comfortable, but you know, I didn't know what to do. And I had a, a dear friend who lived in the town that I wanted to live, in. he said, look, you need to buy a house before you get to be 50. I said, fine. Do uh, you think your mother can help you?" I said, I have no idea. No problem. He yeah. said, tell your mother that I will evaluate her portfolio. He used to be a director at Peter Peabody before the bottom, of, uh, many years ago. But anyway, tell her that I will evaluate her portfolio and send her an analysis. Once I know that, we'll know whether your mother can help you with a house. Well, he was good at his work. He evaluated her portfolio. sent back a 12-page report. And basically, she had done pretty well. She tripled whatever it was that my dad had left when he died. Yeah. But he said, this is the only way we're going to know. Now, the thing is, she didn't know him for a she said everything she had to this stranger, he might have been Jack the Ripper, Yeah. she sent it all there, but <coughs> what happened, he says now, he said, we can start looking at houses for you, what happened, he saw this wonderful house, he says, okay, let's call your mother, <laughs> yeah. that was how it happened. Well, that's I great. What I really like about, about,
2: about the story, though, is I used to work at Kidder Peabody for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I might have been helping out on the team, because I was in charge of the state thing at Kidder Peabody. Know Bruce Cole? You know I did know Bruce Cole. Yeah. My greater question is,
1: <laughs> was it right for your mother to give you the money? Yeah, that's a great question and a great point. I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily in favor of telling the children what the numbers are, ever, ever. Now, that may seem kind of what I'm talking about, but uh, remember I said down with the big train and little train? Give them information about the little train, whatever you think you're willing to tell them about, and um, that can prepare them to deal with a larger train later on, whatever that number is. But that doesn't mean you have to tell them what that number is. If you want to, if, they, if you feel that the confidence and confidence that you expect them to have before they know the numbers, fine, then you can tell them. But if you don't feel that they have the confidence and confidence along the way, then, first of all, you know what to do if it your plan. But that doesn't mean you need to tell them what the numbers are.
3: I'd like to give a, a post to that. Um, I was brought up to believe that you leave this place a better world than when you got here. So I was raised to sort of think about public service. So I have been a state employee for all these many years. And so I did not have or make the kind of money that my mother was able to help me with, so he's right. I mean, did she just give it to me point blank? No, but she knew I could never earn a chunk of money <coughs> all at one time that could help me with that house. Right. So she did that. Right. But I think she felt she trusted me because I was following the family, you know, ritual idea. This is a and it's a great point.
1: It's a very difficult question. This notion of of uh, especially if you have two kids, let's say, you know, what's equal? If one <laughs> of them is an investment banker. And the other one's a public employee for uh, a small, means small somewhere. You know what's equal mean? Should you give more money to the investment banker because the other person has a steady job? But you know, it's a tough question though, and it changes. You just when you think it doesn't change, it changes dramatically. So what does equal mean, and how do you d- design that? And if you did want to, you know, if you have any financial wherewithal, do you? Do you want to set some money? I've got to be divorcing families and creating things where you want to give some amount of money directly to the family. you put chips on the table. I love you. I hope you win. You know? You ought to have control of something because I love you. You I mean you've got your own life. But then there's this other pool of money that we kind of feel like we should set aside that if you lose that, it's there to hope, help pick you up. Or maybe educate your children. And so it's this combination. What percentage you go directly in their hands? What percentage you go in this longer term pool? That seems to be an interesting conversation. And there are ways of getting kids even involved in that conversation. So, while well, philanthropy is powerful. Do any of you not have any children? Because, you know, this can be powerful even if you don't have any children. One of the women we were dealing with, she, um, and this has implications for everyone whether they have children or not, but certainly it was interesting for a woman that had no children. She built a business, very successful, never got married, never had any kids. And we were talking about what your estate plan would do. well, I'm going to leave some of it to charities, and I'm going to leave some of it to my nieces and nephews. And we're like, well, great, why don't you start doing it now? Have some fun. You, you know, built up some nice you know, assets here. I mean, why don't you have some fun? So she almost begrudgingly wrote these $11,000 checks to each of her nieces and nephews, which they might even give them a few years ago. And she wrote some checks to some of the charities that were you know, kind of involved with her. And uh, about five days later, she gets a letter back from one of her nephews. And it said, we are so blown away by this check we just got for you, we couldn't even call you. You wouldn't know this, but the night before we got your check, my wife and I decided we couldn't afford to have any more children. As you know, we adopted a little girl from China, and, and it was expensive. And uh, we were hoping to do it again, but we decided we want to have enough money for the education. We decided we couldn't do it again. And then your check arrived. We're going to adopt a little girl from China, name her after you. I mean, that letter is our most cherished possession. I mean, along with their new niece, and <laughs> she's got a nail on the wall not the niece, the letter. <laughs> <laughs> but remember I told you she gave so much to some of the charities and she was kind of and, and asked money from? She saw the broken heart of her niece and nephew in adoption. She started focusing some of her charity on giving the Arab adoption with them. And they started focusing their time in volunteering some of the charities that she cared about. <laughs> she totally changed her dynamic what it means to remember her family now. And, you know, so it had kind of very broad implications of what you do in philanthropy and how you build your family. I said in the beginning, I would rather see a family using philanthropy effectively as a family and having no estate plan at all than have the best estate plan money to buy not using philanthropy effectively. I really believe that now. And my background is in state planning. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really believe that if I see families doing this correctly. The caring motivation structure instead of caretaking, the implication there is that most trusts tend to create an entitlement attitude. And i unfortunately, if I just imagine this, imagine somebody set up a trust for you. Okay? And it's in the age of 21. Every year for the rest of your life, you've got $100,000 a year of that trust. Just imagine that for a second, okay? Once a year, they cut you a check for $100,000. Here's, here's the question I ask you. How many checks would you have to get from that trust before you start filling titles down? Two. Yeah, one or two. Yes. Four people say three. I mean, normal trusts create an entitlement expectation. I and mean, if you look at the studies, the expenditures go right into the, right in the distribution the trust. Trust designed by parents can't preserve money long-term defendants. The illness of an office in fact they stagnate money. If you own a business, isn't there a natural law of reinvesting in your business? You got to, right? If you're the beneficiary of a trust, is there a natural law of reinvesting in the trust your beneficiary of? Not even a remote concept. Well, one family struggled with that, and they said, the grandparents said to the family, they said, we want to start up fund a trust and put some life insurance in and things like that. But we want you, the beneficiaries of this trust, whenever you take money out of the trust, to view that money as an investment in you instead of a distribution to you. That was a really interesting conversation. You know, what would it look like to have a trust be designed to invest in you instead of distribute to you? They came up with an idea. They said, if somebody wants money from that trust, they have to apply for it. They've got a very simple application. You only fill out one of four parts, but there are four parts, simple parts. The first part is, how is this an investment in your human power? Or an investment, secondly, your intellectual capital, or your social capital, or your financial capital. Simple example, if you want a to adopt another kid, that's human capital, you provide property money for that. Secondly, you want to go for an advanced read at Princeton, you'll buy property money for that. That's your intellectual capital. Third, you want to give to Princeton as a gift or a gift for training, that's social capital. How do they do that as an investment in that? Interesting. And fourth, you want to make a start a business like financial capital. In each one of the areas they're asked, what would success look like in this investment and what would look like? How should people work order for success wish to failure? So they're involved in setting some of the terms. It's a very different approach, but uh, you're starting to see some very interesting things that people are putting together in this area. Most families are going from perceived controlling leaders, though, to civil rivalry, to unknown cousins. I don't know, I don't know about you, but I've got some first cousins that I know very little about. And I'm not a bad guy. turns out that's pretty normal. Um But families that are succeeding are going from these enlightened, successful leaders encouraging sibling partnerships, leading to cousin consortiums. When my children and my sister's children give away the last thousand dollars to charity per year, that's a cousin consortium. It doesn't have to be lots and lots of money we're talking about, but it can dramatically affect the outcome uh, over time. Well, last thing I'll point out to you briefly, because I only have a few minutes before we get to you know Q and A. But uh, I was doing a lot of these presentations and. People were taking notes, and they were coming up afterwards and saying, well, that plant thing, we're going to try it, or that vacation thing, we're going to try it, or that, you know, family constitution, you know, whatever, they were all be wonderful. And I was feeling really good about myself, you know. Okay. And I would see these people a year later and say, how's it going? And they'd say, oh, we didn't do it. And I'd say, why not? And the answer is almost always the same. They said, it was a great idea. We love the idea. Don't get me wrong. But we went home and looked at our kids about how to do with these people. <laughs> 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 So I was giving them this wonderful (coughs) intellectual exercise, but I wasn't helping them be practical. How do you deal with people you know? What they were saying was, they said, it's like you're imagining we have a blank slate on the wall that we can go home and start from scratch. We can't. We've already, you know, drawn a lot of lines in the sand in our family. We've got a lot of bent noses, some of which we know about, some of which we don't know about. We've got spouses, you don't even know the spouses that our kids have. I mean, you know, it's like you imagine we've got this kumbaya experience and to whole hand and toast marshmallows. <laughs> you know, how do we get started if, if we don't have this read this perfect situation? What we found was families were succeeding, we're going through a process much like a management team. The one of the books I recommend is the, uh, the five dysfunctions of a team. Because it talks about how a woman
2: takes a dysfunctional management team of very intelligent people and gets them to work more productively together as a
1: team. Well, guess what? If you can take a group of unrelated people like you, if I could take you right now, and we could go through this, if we had all day, we had testing that we could go through, Myers-Briggs, and communication and values testing, and if we had a chance to do some of that together, we could create a much more of a team concept in this group of unrelated people. It turns out some of those very same tools, not the exact same, but some of them are almost identically beneficial within families. And, and that's what I want to show you now. What are some of the tools you can use to start this process? Or to encourage your children to do with their children to start this process in the family. And the first thing we're finding is, is some kind of an education to the overall family of what are the uses that families are dealing with. I was doing a family meeting recently where just during the presentation part of the family meeting, one of the daughters said, oh, I feel so much better. Now, nothing has been accomplished yet. So she said, why do you feel better? She said, because I'm finally feeling it, realizing that all the things I've been angsting over, that I didn't know how to bring up in this family, are the same thing that sounds like everybody else is angsting over. And she said, first of all, I'm feeling normal. And second of all, I'm feeling like, we ought to be doing something about this. We ought to be talking about this. Well, I thought that was a great accomplishment. Some of the books I'm going to reference to you in a minute um, for level one resources are very helpful at getting family members aware of what are the issues that families dealing with. Why are so many families falling apart uh, along the way? And what can we do about it? The second step is, okay, we understand the issues. Can we talk about it? So we run the family through a communication test. And it's been, uh, we don't use Myers-Briggs. It's a much better test, but it's really powerful. And I'll show you what it looks like in a minute. My normal approach of communicating turns out it was doing damage to a relationship with one of my sons. And I was blaming him for it. It wasn't his fault. It was my fault. When I learned that by looking at one of these very simple communication tests, he didn't have to change. I did. And it's totally saved our relationship. I promise you, <coughs> it is the singular reason that we are communicating better and doing very well in our relationship now. But boy, were we going down the wrong road, and it wasn't because of him. It was because of how I communicated. Uh, when I found that out, it was profound. <coughs> so, there, we actually take a family through a test. I'm going to show you the test in a minute. Third, okay, we understand the issues. We can now talk about it without taking each other off. Um, what do we talk about? Family values. Number one thing people say they want to transfer their kids is their values. And I love it when people come in because I love saying, great, tell me your values. And they usually go, ah. <laughs> oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. You just got to watch me. I live them out every day. Okay, fine. But well, why can't you talk about it? And it's actually not so much to if to share your values with your children. Believe it or not, it isn't. Um, the tipping point, if you read that by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, in about the middle of the book, he talks about... Um, some of the studies that he's seen about values and, and, and friendships and real connectedness with people. If you think about your really good friends, okay, who probably worked for this weekend. If you think of some of your really good friends, what he found was it, you, they weren't really good friends of yours because you shared values with them back when they became friends. It was because you shared experiences with them. And through those experiences, you probably came to appreciate their values, even if they were different, as opposed to sharing their values before they became friends. That's a different turn on, it, but I thought that was interesting. And I've got to say, when I read that, I, I thought, you know, that's right. i got some friends that have totally different values than, than me. But it doesn't mean they're not best friends at the time, Because we shared experiences at a very interesting time. So how would you encourage that? You know, the values and the experiences that create them uh, in the family.
3: In the family.
1: And then philanthropy. I've never seen philanthropy fail when brought in here. If you bring in philanthropy at this point, I mean, if you bring in philanthropy day one and say, we're going to get the charity. That's not a we decision. That's a me decision. If you bring in philanthropy here, it's a we decision. These first three steps I think are designed to create a sense of we. What does it mean to be us? And then it's the us that can make the decision of what should we do as a group going forward. And then we're finding, through all of this, we're finding families are much more likely to actually talk about some of those tough questions out there. Like, you know, when does a person become a member of our family? The The day your kids get married, did their spouse? immediately become a full beneficiary of your entire estate plan? I don't think so. But are they a member of the family? You said so in the toast. I mean, how do you go from a toast to only member of a family to something more significant? You know, would I, if my son get married tomorrow, would I let his wife be a beneficiary of my retirement account starting tomorrow? No. But could I throw an into $1,000 into the charitable giving pool and let her get that away to charity? Why not? What a great way to get to know her and have everybody else to get to know her. You know, that to me is the difference between big train and little train again. If the little train is small enough, you can bring spouses into it. And uh, these are tough questions. If you're trying to deal with those day one, that's like hugging a porcupine. But if you take a step back and start down here, it doesn't take long to get there. So the education, there are some great tools out there. I mentioned a couple of them already. Um, Raising Financially Fit Kids by Jolene Godfrey, I mentioned before. It's a great book. The only caution I have about Jolene's book, I know her well, I love Jolene, she's great, and I think it's one of the best books out there for raising kids. But, you have to know one thing about her. She's a strong, type-A, process-oriented woman with no children. (laughs) So she gives you more ideas than you could actually do. It's like reading a Martha Stewart magazine and thinking, I'm going to do it all, you're going to kill yourself. But if you just look for one or two ideas, you're going to love them. Best I've ever seen, it's in in her book. Um, family Wars by Gordon Nicholson, great book. The Five Nostrums of the Team. Um, the Ultimate Gift by Jim Stovall. Great to read to young kids, too. Maybe not toddlers, but five, six years old? Yeah, I'd read it to them. Uh, anyway, really good uh, research. And, and the outlier scientific point. I think, a wonderful developmental knowledge about how people develop. And if you apply that to family, we're finding it to be very, very beneficial. Here are some of those books that I just referenced. Level 2, the communication. We run people through the, the, the strategy and group test. If we had to decide what we are going to order for lunch right now, and we all eat the same thing, our style of how we communicate in a group decision-making process would start to emerge. People tend to be challenged. I want lasagna. You know, or they're supportive. I belong with lasagna. They tend to be disciplined. Here are the reasons I want to have lasagna. A, B, and C. Nutritious, fulfilling, eat it with a fork. Or they're spontaneous. I just want it. And they named it. Up here, you've got your persuaders, your counselors, analysts, directors. Persuaders are those ones who make those <coughs> impulsive decisions. They're sitting on the edge of the seat with their answer before you finish the question. Analyzers, they've got to think about it. Give me more facts first, you know. Let's take some time here. Persuaders, you know, when they start talking, they're usually not sure what they're thinking yet. <laughs> they have to list themselves. You know, I'm not thinking this, and I'm not thinking that. Well, why are you talking? I can say that I'm a persuader. Analyzers, when they speak, they meant it. I told what I thought last year. Don't you remember what I said? The moment a persuader opens their mouth and analyzer starts getting ticked off. <laughs> uh, not by what they're saying, but how they're saying it. This happened to me. I'm in the upper left-hand corner. I've got a son right over there on that right-hand edge. My normal approach of communicating was doing damage on our relationship. If I needed his help breaking leaves this weekend, I might have said, you know, hey, Peter, what are you doing on Saturday afternoon? And he would say, why? <laughs> and I was, I was, you know, punching him thinking he was being really disrespectful. He actually wasn't. He was dealing with my insensitivity. Because I can't start with the agenda. I need help breaking the lead. No, I've got to leave a story. And throw throwing some guilt and some obligation. My bad, bad. Yeah. By the time I tell him i got to break the I want to volunteering. Uh, <laughs> uh, the more time I take to build the case that I'm comfortable building, so that I would have gone along with it the way I built this case, the more likely he will have left the room angry before I get the punchline. Okay. When I found this out, he didn't have to change. I did. And it was really simple. Um, directors and councils are very different as well. Directors want to make decisions efficiently for results. Let's make a decision and move on. Councils are more concerned about, wait, a minute, is everyone really buying that decision? How good is the family decision if somebody leaves say, I'm never coming back? The director would say, don't worry about it. If we make the right decision, they'll come back. <coughs> they don't. <laughs> councils, you know, are very concerned about that. What I love about the test, they quickly plus everybody is and then talk about what can you do about it. Well, anyway, there are a lot of tests. That's the one I just mentioned. This is step two now. And this is probably the top test we recommend. There are a bunch of tests out there, Myers, briggs DISC, and Colby. I think that's the best one for families, though. Family values, we normally encourage families to use the, um, the relative solution values cards test, where you give everybody, the fam- this will be administered to the families, you give everybody the family a deck of cards. And this deck of cards has different values listed on it. And everybody puts these these values into three different categories. Which of these are always important to me? Which of these are sometimes important to me? And which of these are really not important to me at all? Okay? And ideally, everybody in the family comes up with 15 of these that are in their always column. Okay? And then they build a pyramid out of those 15 cards. What's my most important value? Then my two next, then my three next, my four next. and, And everybody builds a pyramid of their top values. And then when they flip over the cards in their pyramid, they see that each of their, their uh, cards or the values is a different color code of, of uh, values t- a values type. And then you give them a, a name badge that's blank, and it's a set of stickers, and they repopulate their pyramid with their values. And they put it on their chest as their name badge for the rest of the weekend. And they have a chance to talk about, hey, Dad, you get a lot of red. What's written? that's self-expression. Mom, you got a lot of green. What's that? What's intrinsic? You know, you got some you know, pink or whatever. It's, but it's really cool to talk about where are the overlaps in our family and where the uniquenesses. Just as interesting to talk about the uniquenesses, by the way. Because underlying some of those uniquenesses and maybe the generating in the fourth or fifth level are usually life-changing stories that they may or may not have shared with the family. These are experience-building exercises, we find, very powerful. Because Dad's a set of values and some of mom. mom's with a big overlap. But you throw in the family and here are the family values and here are the uniquenesses. Well, that's the, the values proposition. Then philanthropy, there are some wonderful books out there on philanthropy. I'm not going to get into them because I, I really do recommend you go through the, the original process first, but there are some great books on philanthropy. Charlie Collier's I list is one of the top ones. Uh, philanthropy, Heirs and Values. Lewis Coleman's book. These are really good philanthropic books and ideas of how to use philanthropy in your family. And then healthy family governance, there are some great tools as well. But, and then you get to these questions. But the bottom line is people saying that the three questions I said before, how much is enough, the answer seems to be the amount you prepare them for. And if you prepare them for enough, or a lot, that's fine. But if you want to leave them nothing, it's really hard to prepare them for nothing. Don't just think you just leave nothing and that's right to do it. Uh, secondly, when do you tell them? When they're ready to hear it. And use little train opportunities to prepare them to hear what the numbers are. And you can do that, you know, relatively quickly. And then third, how do you break the paradigm of shirts and shirts and three generations? By building flexible family teams and empowering them. And the bottom line is people saying, you know, most families are failing at this, but some aren't. Those that aren't are defining their wealth differently in these broader categories, acting differently around their wealth with team-building exercises, and uh, we're saying, they're fine, they're saying two things. They're saying, this simplifies our life and it provides a significant better result. And that's more than enough, and I went over my time. But anyway, uh, any, uh, any final questions or thoughts before you all head out to your, what you call it, a P-Ray?
0: Yeah. Do you notice a trend with respect to trustee
1: responsibilities towards uh, having family members
0: be the trustees or towards having institutions be the trustees?
1: It's a great question. We're actually seeing a tremendous change <coughs> right now as we speak. Uh, Many And it's coming, again, from family offices. Many family offices are creating a private family trust company. And I think one of the changes that we're actually proposing uh, doing this right now is we're potentially, and I'm not sure we're going to do this yet, but we're really doing a lot of work in it, creating a multifamily private trust company. But a private trust company that's designed to invest the money in the family, not distribute the money to the family. Most institutional trustees, by law, sort of have to distribute the money to the family. And they can't really be proactively investing the money effectively into them. They were incentive trust not designed to try and uh, uh, get around that, but they created a lot of unintended consequences. So there's a lot going on around that question right now. Um, because who do you choose as trustee? You can choose an individual family member, but then that can cause all kinds of problems. I my father asked me, and I said, no way. Um, you can choose an attorney, but what happens when they die? You can choose an institution, but most the institutions you could have thought of when you were 10 years ago don't exist right now. So, I mean, most of them don't. So, you know, it is a really big question and there's a lot going on right now, but I think what's going to come out of it is a different process of trustees. Uh, right now, it's can also the attorneys that are having a hard time with this. If you went to your attorney and said, we created a really interesting family governing structure as a family, so we want you to link a generation-giving trust for a family governing trust uh, process, the attorney's can go, what? I get the idea of trustee, co-trustee, institutional trustee. I don't get the idea of family constitution trustee. And yet that's exactly what some of the families are asking of their attorneys right now. So it's, it's a it's a burgeoning, changing area with a lot of property to go on. But I agree with you there. Right now, the historical solutions are just choose an institution. I'm not a big fan of that. Choose a family member. I'm not a fan of that. Choose an individual. I'm not a fan of that. I'm a fan of some of the combinations of those. But... Um, but you get into this issue of how do you empower them. I guess the, the sentence that I would put together that most aptly describes is how do you design a trust? So it has the teeth of protection the parents want and the law allows. But also it has the flexibility of empowerment the next generation seems to need for buying. And then how do you provide a trustee structure over that? And that, that that's a mouthful right there that geez, What I've learned here is that the most important accomplishment is going from a vertically integrated family to a horizontally integrated family and if you're lucky enough to, to get there how do you define
3: within your family how broad the horizontal reaches out
1: it's a great point you know we can i think it was the tipping point malcolm gladwell talks about groups can operate very effectively as groups till you get to about 150 members and it's interesting he said that because i found a number of families that are multi-generational family offices uh, <laughs> if they've really been successful preserving family, they get to a big enough number and they start to then divide. And they'll create... They don't abandon the idea of groups. They just set up separate groups. Um, But it's up to every family. But I'm just an advocate of creating the concept of group. You know, the the concept of family. We we let it slide for a long time. We just let it... Just assume it was going to automatically be there. And it's not automatically there. It turns out there was cultural things... There were cultural things that were going on that was creating it. And there were family things going that was creating it, and that's not being replicated by the society as a whole. So we are encouraging families to get back in the game of trying to, you know, pull the team, the operate horizontally, and and we're seeing great success in families at all. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Princeton University. You can explore gift planning ideas on the university website. The easiest way to do so is to go to the university homepage, go to the search engine, and type in gift planning. Or you can call the gift planning office at 609-258-6318. And I encourage you to send me a message directly at rbrown at princeton.edu. Thanks very much.